Hello everybody, and welcome back for another episode of Mangum Reads, our merry meander through the momentous moments of modern myth-making. As per usual, I'm Spencer, and with me are BJ and Sarah. How y'all doing? Quite well, Spencer. How are you doing? Uh, still full of Thanksgiving food, and probably will be for about the next five or six days. So do you, like, like a snake just, like, take an entire turkey and just curl around it in a large bump on your belly? You saw me eat in college, yes. <laughs> <laughs> How's it going for you, sir? I am doing just fine. Well, y'all, we we had an interesting experience last week of where we read an author who we all quite enjoyed what we read of previously, and quite didn't when we tried to read one of his short stories mm-hmm. about Kim Lu. Mm-hmm. Um, so we decided to give him another shot with a story that BJ recommended. BJ, what did you send before us this week? Um, so I put before you a another of LeVar Burton Reed's uh, stories, but that was sort of more coincidental than anything else. Um, the short story is Mano no Aware. And um, I, I think you say that we're giving Ken Liu another chance, but we're really not, because we're not trusting his word on anything, because his opinions of his own stories are clearly bad ones. <laughs> <laughs> but it's possible that LeVar Burton's opinions are superior. So we liked his prior recommendation. Yeah. Um, I mean, his extensive engineering experience, I think, leads him to do a good job of picking out, you know, sci-fi, space-faring... <laughs> Uh, stories. Yeah, I have to wonder for a role like that, how much gobbledygook did he have to memorize in terms of learning about Star Trek engineering? Who knows? Um, for this Probably week, about then, as much as uh, my husband did for your Chernobyl podcast. Yeah, pretty much. We were about, about, probably about the same level of expertise. <laughs> well, for this short story, um, I'll, let's, let's start with just some initial thoughts, I guess, given how straight up negative we were about the last one did you guys like this short story more i did um i thought i i like this short story much more it is nowhere near paper menagerie level but it did have a more um a more effective effective and affecting (laughs) way about it um so yeah i i liked it much better Mm -hmm. sorry spencer what was that I, i was just gonna say in the sense that it actually engaged us as compared to the last one Yes. Yeah, I think the... I, I cared marginally about what happened. Yeah. <laughs> That's a step up. I mean, the characters were more than caricatures. The idea for the story was more than just a, ha-ha, Egyptology. Um, <laughs> but in space. Yeah. Mm. Well, yeah. I mean, it, well, it still is but in space, but like... Sure. Well, then I'm curious then, what did the uh, realms of the internet think? Do you have any one-star reviews for us to start off with? I do. Um, although, once again, we are back in short story territory that, um, you know, makes it a little difficult to get reviews for individual stories. But I do have um, one, and I, I will say that this is a two-star review, not a one-star review, uh, oh. but it is a review from Amazon that I thought was interesting given some conversations that we have had around some of these um science fiction and fantasy awards particularly. Mm -hmm. So I will give you this review from David and the title of which is simply Hugo and Nebula awards are becoming meaningless, which is ended with an ellipses. So, okay. You can totally trust this guy's opinion. (laughs) The review 
um, which I have there, there, there's a couple of different things going on here. Um, so book was okay, but not really my cup of tea, i.e. didn't really feel like science fiction to me. I'm more of a hard sci-fi guy when I, and when I, and when I think of great prose, I think of the likes of Alistair Reynolds and Ian Banks. This book was bland by comparison. While the book had some interesting concepts, some just struck me as idiotic. For example, a girl's soul manifesting as an ice cube is something I expect my stoner friends to come up with, not a Hugo Award winner. But then again, most of the Hugo Nebula, quote, unquote, award-winning books these days aren't good science fiction either. Okay. I mean... What was that part about the ice cube? Maybe. So I think another story in this collection um, but has something going on. Did... Hmm. Does this per- I, I think my favorite thing about this person, and this is my favorite thing about one-star reviews, especially like, and I keep touching on this, but one-star Yelp reviews about restaurants, where it's just like, he didn't get the brief and just says something mm-hmm. stupid. Because... Well, yeah. Well, and, and that's what's great. I mean, sometimes one-star reviews, like, they actually read the thing and have a one-star review, which is just funny because they're just, you know, right or wrong or whatever. But like... It's not the book that won the Hugo, because short story collections don't do that. No, and and God, for it, it seems like he expects that any author who has at some point won the Nebula or the Hugo, therefore must always produce. <laughs> yeah, good. <laughs> the stuff. same content, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I guess or the same level of content. To me, yeah. it's like you know, he won a a prize, and and then so anything that's within like. Mano no Aware and other stories are part of that prize, and it's just like, mm, no. That's not the way that works. But, no, no. This story won the Hugo in 2013. The rest are compiled together. Yes. Yeah. Um, my favorite part about this review um, is th- this line that just, I think I... I think that I always read this line or any variant of it in the least generous way possible, mm-hmm. and I'm okay with that. Uh, but this, I'm more of a hard sci-fi guy, and when I think of great prose, blah, blah, blah. I, that kind of distinction just really, ugh. Well, I mean, for one thing, this is hard science fiction by most definitions. It's strictly yes. grounded in science. It's based on current technology we know and are pondering to travel rapidly through space. Mm-hmm. It's going to a solar system we know has super-Earths and is within about 28 light-years of us. This is all pretty hard science fiction we're talking about. Yes, but it doesn't Yeah, and I'm have... sure that he's talking about... Go ahead, BJ. I was going to say, it doesn't have people wandering through zero, zero G and, and revealing clothing on the women, so maybe not oh, really his kind. taste. True. True. D- d- do either of you know the two authors he mentioned? Because I don't. No, I didn't. I was actually going to ask both of you about that. I haven't read, but I am familiar with Alistair Reynolds' Um and Do you know anything kind of about what his shtick is? I don't. I mean, I, I'm not great about exploring other books very often, and that's sort of one of the reasons <laughs> that we do this podcast. It's so, like, sure. I can expand the breadth of, of what I read with things that you guys read and then things that we just sort of decide to pick up. Um, but I I guess I, I, I don't know how his prose is, but, like, in terms of famous sci-fi authors, he is one, but, like... He's usually not in, like, the first five, or maybe he might be in the first ten, but he's not in the first, like, five of sci-fi authors that people name, and that's just sort of like a, I mean, take, do with that as you will. Yeah, and that was kind of my, because I'm not, I don't know much about 
sci-fi really, but I do think that I could probably identify top names or at least see a name and say, yes, I know. Mm -hmm. And like these did not ring any sort of bells with me at all. Yeah. And that felt a little weird. Um, And yeah, I don't, the whole tone of it felt a little, a little weird to me. Um, A little bit like the worst parts of some segments of certain fandoms, like sci-fi Yes, yes, thank you. Of certain fandoms who, like, make these weird, bold claims and then don't back off of them. And when something doesn't conform to exactly what they think a genre should be, then that's a problem. I feel like I need to insert something about season eight here. (laughs) (laughs) You don't have... I I can't pretend to be that fan, don't worry. We'll just just splice Terry in later. Yeah. Okay, can't do. (laughs) Though, in, in typical fashion, he has come around to other views. <laughs> we all end up at the same point eventually, I think. Yes. Um, anyway, so I guess I wouldn't give this story a one star. Um, I, I would get close to a one star in the last one that we read. Um, I, I think it was more deserving of the, maybe on a, I guess, is this a four or five star scale? I don't remember now. It's a five star scale. Okay. Um, I probably do like a solid four for this one. Yeah, I, I think I'd do like a, maybe a three and a half to four, but like I liked it. Yeah. Spencer? Yeah, I, th- I, th- I think it's right in that range. I mean, it, it, it was good. I mean, as, as we'll talk about, I enjoyed experiencing it in one format a lot more than the other. Mm-hmm. Um, when I listened to it on the Varburton Reads, I would have given it maybe a two. Um, whereas when I then read it, I'd give it closer, you know, three and a half, four, leading towards a four. Okay. So, but yeah, I, I enjoyed it. Uh, it was, it was, it was, well structured in terms of the story it wanted to tell it was one of the, one of the biggest differences i saw with this one is that it was it made sense to me that this was a short story whereas the last one didn't at least in mm-hmm. terms of how it was built up and that made it much more likable mm-hmm. but do you have any more other one star reviews for us or two star reviews if we're exploring that category now no i just grabbed this one for now i had a couple other earlier but i you know i think i think this one's good mm-hmm. good for well, it <laughs> because um we can go into my cocktail for the evening. Oh, please. Um, which obviates the need for any one-star reviews because it is called a Hope Springs. And as we will, I think, discuss, Hope plays a pretty prominent role in this story uh, and what Hope means in different situations and what it means in, in different families and individuals and all of that. Um, so I have this sort of Hope Springs Eternal, which is not based on any, like, actual cocktail, um, but has taken all of the really crappy ingredients that I have left over from a lot of other things and put them together in the hopes that they will um, alchemically change into something better slash drinkable. So there's a lot of stuff going on here. There is the weird carrot liqueur that, or carrot, I guess it's really, it's not a liqueur. It's closer to a gin. Um, that Levi gave me with a beet liqueur um, and a little bit of bitters and some lemon. And then because none of that was actually very good, I threw a whole bunch of black cherry juice on top of it. Hmm. That that sounds very, it's like an alcoholic juice cleanse. It kind of feels like that. I mean, it's not bad. Yeah. Um, you like but gin, it all right? feels like very, very earthy. Me, I, yeah, I do. Okay, 
Gin is my go-to. That's what I thought, liquor. but then when you're yeah. talking about the carrot gin, you, you. Yeah, it's it doesn't really taste like gin. Levi tried to sell it to me as carrot flavored gin, and mm. it's really not. Okay. So anyway, that's what I'm drinking. Um, it is. It comes from the earth and goes into the cherry trees, and um, that seems reasonable. As reasonable as anything for this story. I like it. It sounds like a boozy Eastern European stew, but, you know, I'm down. Sounds tasty. <laughs> it is, yeah. It's fermented borscht. <laughs> you know, it, it sounds interesting. I just have no concept of what some of those would taste like. Like, a carrot liqueur is something I've not pondered existing. So I well, don't know. Well, there's some the... of it left. I, I mean, I, I, now that you've said it, we do need to make alcohol, borscht alcohol with... <laughs> Oh, I'm, I'm down for it. It's fine. Although I think a, a more vodka than gin would be better there. Probably. Mm. I mean, obviously we have to have some potato vodka and then, you know, the carrot and and beet. And anyway, we'll, we'll figure it out. Um, but I, You know, this is, I have to say that this is, it is not in one of those drinks that like I will drink a ton of and continue to make as I have for some of my recipes. But it is, <laughs> it's legitimately not bad. Gotcha. Um, it really... The, the black cherry really takes over everything. Which is important. Sure. Um, when you're trying to get rid of other stuff. <laughs> yeah. Um, so our story. Yeah. Um, it's, it's a very Japanese story to me. Um, and I also really like, th- and I'm impressed at how well the interweaving of different time points goes with this story in a short story. Because mm-hmm. I feel like usually short stories kind of usually go with a consistent timeline um because they're so short it's a lot harder to jump around and still keep your readers engaged and i think this story does a surprisingly good job of that so where do we start in the story should usually should we go in (laughs) yeah how do we how do we want to do this do we want to start with the beginning the author picks or the beginning of the time of the time frame that the story material? Do we want to start from, you know, before he gets on the spaceship or from where it begins on the spaceship? Um, I think the in terms of telling the story maybe like a a time linear way. I think that and makes then, more sense. And then yeah. we can discuss yeah. like, you know, maybe a little bit of how it was interweaved and, and go from there. Because um, otherwise it gets a, a lot disjointed and it'll take us way longer to summarize a relatively straightforward plot. Yes. No. Um, well, it's the end of the world. Or at least approaching it. And they're accepting the more than fine. Yeah. <laughs> an, an asteroid by the name of the Hammer, which I'm picturing how Wu ha- rocketing <laughs> towards the planet, uh, apparently is on a death course for Earth, despite the po- various politicians and scientists trying to debate that it isn't. And preparations are underway in Japan to evacuate, they're told, the, the wholesale of the population. Mm-hmm. Of each person getting their own window seat. Uh, the various people of the communities are lining up to be transported to the key evacuation, uh, the key camp from which they will then be put aboard the spaceships and rocketed up into space to go elsewhere, out of the way of this massive Earth-ending asteroid. Mm-hmm. And throughout this initial part, we start to get the initial exposure of our main character, who I actually do not remember his name. Hiro- Hiroto. Yeah, Hiroto? Yes. Hiroto. Uh, and his interactions with his family, primarily his dad. Um, Bas- I would say that... Yeah, I was going to say, I think basically his dad is very much still trying to instill him with Japanese culture and teachings and that sort of... The sense that we get in, in the discussions that he has with his father. 
Right. He's very much a, a traditionalist. He's very proud of Japanese culture. He's very proud of what, what aspects of Japanese culture are represented in moments like this. Of the, there's no looting. There's no wholesale fighting in the streets. People are just in ordered queues, marching where they've been told to go because that's part of keeping things going in moments of desperation like this. Mm-hmm. And, and actually, this kind of discussion, Spencer, uh, reminded me a lot of the way that you and Terry were discussing on your Chern- Chernobyl podcast, kind of what the Soviet Union ethic actually enabled to happen in the face of a catastrophe, right? right. That kind of way of approaching things made mm-hmm. possible actions and collective action that would not necessarily have been possible in like the United States, for example. Yeah, a little mm-hmm. less drunk, though. Uh, wait, the Japanese as compared to the Russians? <laughs> yes. <laughs> that makes sense. Uh, yep, at least here, everything starts out rather hopeful. They are reassured that the, uh, the state is doing as it was promised it was going to do, that the evacuation plans are in order, and it is simply a matter of maintaining control, maintaining discipline, and going where they need to go so that they can be part of this grand experiment they're all engaged in. Um, and throughout this, the, uh, the dad is continuing to provide lessons to his son. He's using this whole thing as a teaching experience. It pretty quickly goes south, though, as once they've arrived at the camp and been there presumably for a matter of days, um, the various promises by government officials start to get a bit more thin and a lot less uh, support behind them. There are a bunch of rumors and, basically going around that there aren't enough ships or they weren't well constructed or basically there are problems and they're not going to be able to get the entire population out. Which the father tries to stifle very quickly, basically under the idea that a they're not true. We need to trust. Our, we need to trust the government anyway. Or b there's no point in spreading these. Mm-hmm. That sp- mm-hmm. spreading these themselves is harmful to these people right now. It could get people hurt or killed or just losing hope in moments where they need to have that. Um, Which is interesting, the, given the reaction yeah. once they find out that in fact the rumors are true. Which is just like okay, well we'll go home now. And it, the, even the book itself ponders how to interpret that kind of emotional response. Mm-hmm. Of, um, we'll get to that point later when he's debating it with a friend. But yeah, the prime minister comes on television, radio, whatever else, announces the broadcast that, yeah, we got screwed over by the contractors. That all the ships they were apparently building, none of them were fit to even go into orbit, much less take us where we need to go from there. And this is so, when I want to have a government contracting expert talk about how this, you know, is completely reasonable or would never happen. Um, and it's a 50-50. <laughs> Sarah's Lee there. Can we bring him in? <laughs> he is off duty tonight, guys. Aw, <laughs> oh, damn. Um, um, this, but, so the other yeah. thing that I really appreciate about this announcement is, like, I feel like if he was a worse author, the, the uh, prime minister would have, like, committed ritual suicide or something like that and it just it would not have been the right tone but i can 100 percent see another right writer doing that yeah he's, he's definitely enmeshing himself in traditional japanese culture but he's trying to avoid making it stereotypical i mean i think it's of... more a modern take like what modern japanese culture is more like than mm-hmm. than the manga version of it sure well as you said the prime minister announces this and with, with a little bit of grumbling at first, everyone takes this, goes home, and for the rest of the story on Earth that we see in Japan, goes about their lives. They uh, go about their work. They go celebrate one hell of the last Christmas that's going to happen on planet Earth. Mm-hmm. But one of the main things we see happening in this family, beyond getting, getting more very interesting lessons from the father, including a series of poems, which were, I think we're later on when we get to it, we see that the mom 
and well, both both of Hiroto's parents are in communication with an American doctor who they knew when they were back in college. And from what we see, what were previously involved in a bit of a um, how, to, how to put this, both Hiroto's dad and this American doctor were apparently into Hiroto's mom, and the mom picked Hiroto's dad, and that's still been kind of a thing that threaded their friendship going forward. But that prior connection has given this family one seat potentially on the way on the way out for the only ship that was apparently built that could possibly get people to another solar system where this doctor did I write down what the name of the doctor was I don't have it in front of me no I don't I don't have it written down um, but this doctor like really worked on the construction of the ship right mm-hmm. yeah he was the one who designed mm-hmm. it and so he presumably then needs to go aboard to make sure it continues to work mm-hmm. and he has a plus one available he originally offers to take Hiroto's mom with him and calls the dad to basically present this possibility which both of them agree would be probably the only polite way he could ask that question given the obvious implications of it uh the dad pretty vehemently refuses and do you guys remember what the mom's response was because i found it interesting you well go ahead spencer it, it was no, no. interesting what would you say bj it, it was a i understand why he would say this but like it's not something that i would ever consider essentially yeah which i thought was an interesting way of responding to it it's 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 basically appreciative but just appreciative in a way that oh that's nice but obviously no but it leads into another more viable option in their minds of where well how how much we want to how much we want to jump around here because we also get several experiences of haruto walking with his dad the various series of poetry and everything else a lot of time is spent on earth before we ever end up in space yeah so it's and and so i i feel Mm -hmm. like the to to me the point of it is getting the the sense of of loss and giving up of the son of of Hiroto's parents as well as sort of introducing us to the uh somber and poetic nature of uh Japanese phrases and poetry and poems in general and sort of mm-hmm. how they relate to how um Hiroto is is being brought up and how he views life. Mm-hmm. You, you know, I mean, you can call him somber or melancholy, but it doesn't seem to be in any way depressed about it. It's just an awareness of the fleeting nature of, the, of all that is around us and also a celebration of it, even though it is fleeting. Yeah, well, the fading sunlight holds infinite beauty, though it is so close to the day's end. I mean, and nothing in the cry of cicadas suggests they are about to die. Um, yeah, but they're still enjoying the music and enjoying the beauty. It's, 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 a, it's a constant awareness that you're on the edge of the abyss, but you're being okay with that. And it is, it is not only being okay with that, but it is also a sort of finding beauty in that fleetingness. Mm-hmm. Yes, I, I guess... That that is, like, the very source of that beauty in the first place. Yes, I, I, I agree with all of those. I, I just, I, I don't know, I find it more somber than, than you do, I guess, Spencer. But, mm. but you're the always happy-go-lucky kind of guy, so, I mean, it makes a lot of sense. Glad you got that out without laughing. Um, so you, you did several of the poems, but I do love the poems we do these. I mean, I'm horrible in terms of describing Japanese poetry, but would these qualify as haikus? Or uh, are they not structured in that way? Um, I actually think that they are haikus in English. Um, they are. The drooping flower, as yellow as the moonbeam, so slender tonight, uh, I believe mm-hmm. is the 575. Yeah, it is. I just counted it. Nice. So... Mm-hmm. But, 
I mean, it's quite fun. It's again, it's the father very much in the last moments they're going to share, trying to instill into him the values of their culture, of the society, and the, what, he, what he wants him to take with him. At this point, the father doesn't even necessarily know that he has a way out yet. I mean, I think they're pretty strongly implying that dad's not brought into the loop about the mom's plan to get the son off Earth until they're basically at the embassy. Um, so I think it's more that he just wants them to have these moments to share with him, pass on to him, even if, even, even as the world's ending around him. If anything, they're probably more appropriate in these moments than they ever been before. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think that's fair. But... Um, and so it's in this part that we get one of the more interesting phrases um, that we first oh. get introduced to it. And I, I'm curious how you guys feel about it. Um, the story behind it in, in uh, LeVar Burton Reads, I think, was a little bit... was kind of funny... But um, mm-hmm. yeah. the the sort of moving part of the poem, the author and the uh, Hirota describes as uh, like a gentle kitten is licking the inside of my heart. Yeah. What did you all think of that as a sort of description? It made my heart kind of pulse for a second. It, it was it's a very evocative way of describing something in a way I've never kind of pondered before. But. We use, we, we use the expression tug on the heartstrings, and it kind of has a, con- a connection to that in some ways. Because you're mm-hmm. thinking about the kind of, Sarah, you own cats. You know that their tongues are surprisingly kind of rough and grabby to a certain degree. <laughs> yes. So the, so the idea of a cat tug, uh, the cat licking on your heart, even if it's gentle, it's still going to have a bit of a tug and a pull and a scrape effect to it. So it's something that is clearly emotionally affecting, but also has a, a tinge of pain and bitter, a, a tinge of pain even attached to it, I guess. Yeah. Um, what about you, BJ? Um, I guess, so my sense was that would be super uncomfortable. Um, <laughs> I kind of like Spencer's like, you know, anything sort of happening, but, but I, but the sense that I feel like the author is trying to convey is more, is way more gentle than, mm-hmm. um, and I think it does a very good job of capturing a young child trying to talk about like their internal state and their feelings particularly when he's having a poetry discussion with his dad. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it felt like, I think that it, kind of exactly to your point, BJ, it worked for, it worked in that it described exactly how a young child would start to kind of think in this metaphorical way. Does Mm -hmm. that make sense? Yes. Um, Mm -hmm. Because it has this kind of like weird juvenile feel to it, like Mm -hmm. as as a metaphor, as a a simile, really. Um, But... I think it does, Spencer, also to, to your point, it, it, like, it does get across that feeling while still feeling mm-hmm. like, oh, yes, this is, this is a child figuring out what it means to be affected by this, this particular type of beauty and, um, and melancholy and all of that. Mm-hmm. It, it really feels authentic because it, it so perfectly encapsulates probably what he felt in that moment, what the physical sensation of what that emotion was upon him. It, it, you, you can, I mean, as we find out later during the interview segment of the Levar Burton reads, this is a legitimately a thought and a feeling that he had growing up when a cat licked him for the, when he allowed a little kitten to lick him for the first time. But he wasn't Bradley young. Kinlu, well, it wasn't clear to me when he was talking about how long he waited before he let that cat lick him. Well, I think it was years. I think it was a long time because he grew up with a cat that terrified him because his grandmother got him like a companion cat that apparently like emotionally scarred him and so it was much later in his life when he was willing to approach a cat and let it lick him <laughs> which i feel like spencer you're having a, a a like how could anybody not love all of the cats moment no, i'm have i'm having that moment but i'm respecting that he went through this thing 
Um, but it, it led to him having what you described as being a, a, a I forget the word he used it, but a magical moment of when that cat licked him for the first time, the feel that it had on his hand when it licked him. Mm-hmm. And he's clearly bringing that reference into the story. Yes. Um, and so we have a little bit more of um, his parents' interactions and then basically as this Christmas that you were talking about, Spencer, like the last Christmas, they were going to surprise um, Hiroto's dad and basically... <laughs> God? Is, is Christmas a big thing in Japan? Yeah. I actually don't know. I don't know. Yeah. It, it, I mean, it is. Um, I, I think it's sort of a little bit different, but, but I think it still is in, in a sort of more commercial sense than a Christian mm-hmm. sense, so kind of like mm-hmm. the U.S. Um, <laughs> okay. Sorry. Didn't mean to interrupt. Oh, no curious. worries. Um, so, so, yeah, it, they go out to, to get some... Uh, do some Christmas shopping, I guess, for, for um, his dad. And, and basically, um, he's like, oh, you know, I expected we would go to the electronics area so we could pick something out, but we're going somewhere else. I wonder what's here. And then um, the the doctor, Dr. Hamilton, Thank you. Um, basically is there and it's just like, oh, you're giving me to somebody to take me away. Okay. Um, mm-hmm. And he sort of goes kicking and screaming. Um, and then... Well, the, the, the dad shows up, apparently yes. on site, having, I guess, followed them to the embassy? I, having expected what she was about to do? My presumption is he figured it out, like, at some point a while before this, and maybe in some of his discussions, like, this is... He's also trying to say goodbye, let go, sort of all of these mm-hmm. things. Like, it's not clear exactly when he figured it out, but... I, I think that some of it is is in that, and then we have sort of one last poem: um, a dandelion in in late autumn's cooling breeze spreads seeds far and wide, um, mm-hmm. and then basically his dad says, "Remember that you're Japanese," and away he goes. Away he goes, mm-hmm. and pretty much everything yeah. else I think is spaceship. Yes. Yeah, the, the only the only other thing we get of well, well of the the Earth we're describing right now before the apocalypse is various news articles or television um, announcements um, portraying what's happening in the rest of the world as compared to Japan right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Of where most of the world has apparently gone to hell in a handbasket. Of where there's there are wars in the streets, there are nations that are tearing at each other, utter collapse of society, while America is apparently going very aggressively attacking a rogue state that has interfered with their evacuation plan rather than try to continue with the evacuation plan. Because this story pretty much, I mean, they what they say is that there is one ship they got into orbit before all this started, uh, they've gotten to orbit so far. Is the implication that that is the only ship, period, that is successfully evacuating the planet? Is that what you guys got out of it? I mean, that's what I understood, at least for the, the moment. I think that whether that is like actually the only ship or not, I think that it is very clear that the tiniest fraction of people mm-hmm. have right. any hope of getting out. Yeah, and I think it was sort of exacerbated by like how the hammer came down and, mm-hmm. and things like that. Mm-hmm. Right. It, if there are other ships, it's I think very apparent that our main character is not aware of them. That they're right. going separately to different solar systems or whatever else. Yep. So... We then cut to, I'll say, 20 years later, probably? Yeah, pro- I Something mean, probably at least 15 to 20, maybe, yeah. Because he's very much an adult when we... Yeah, I, but I think, like, mid to late 20s, so... I would say, not yeah. Like... I mean, he, he's, he's eight, I think he said, when he boarded the spaceship, so... 
Okay. 20 years is probably reasonable. Let's say about 20, yeah. It, it's very clear that, like, we, I mean, we get a lot of information throughout his time on the ship that, like, he has grown up in the ship. Yeah. Right. I actually they think become, he's 25. They, I, I think they actually may even say that at one point. Yeah, I think it, it says, okay. it, well, it, yeah. or at least while he's on the ship, I don't remember if it's that, di- like, the days that were, uh, that pretty much all of this happened, but he, he wishes that he could ask his dad how to say I miss you on your 25th birthday to basically right. your entire culture that right. doesn't exist anymore. Mm-hmm. Good call. Good call. But he's become a man of importance aboard this ship of just over a thousand people of where his job is to basically monitor the lattice of the solar sail that is propelling this ship through the cosmos. Um, BJ, do you know enough about a solar sail to tell us what it is? Because I can bluff my way through part of it otherwise. I mean, essentially, it in... Yes. Actually, so. Sarah, you've been reading technical man- a lot of technical materials lately. Has a solar sail come up? No, but I know a little bit about solar wind, which I assume is Basically, related. Yeah. You, you two can <laughs> what team is up. Pushing you know, the you, pushing you, the sail. <laughs> yes. You both already know more than I do. Team up here. Um, so so there's the complicated thing that light is sort of particles and sort of not, um, mm. but they can exert a force on basically anything uh and but that force is very minor unless it's over uh, a concentrated amount of light or over a very large surface area and so sort of the idea of a solar sail is that you have a very 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 large surface area and so light hitting it uh will propel things forward uh will propel the ship that's sort of being tagged along forward um there are breakdowns, presumably, in, in the hard science here, which is maybe why the person that gave the two-star review was bitching and moaning about it. Because essentially, like, once you get far enough away from a given light source, like, there's no point in having, like, this open sail. It's kind of like yeah. being on a, a normal ship with a sail and there being no wind and having like all of the sails up and it's just like well mm-hmm. it's not gonna net you anything so why why are you doing that anyway well, so. i think i think the story actually explains that point of where they're still in the solar system right now when the story is occurring of where they seem to be still building up speed using the solar sail so that when they are then propelling through the cosmos closer to the speed of light they i guess with it and close up the sail but i think right now they're still accelerating essentially around the solar system catching catching um photons yeah, I mean they they so it, they do say that they're accelerating the that that they are still accelerating. We don't know exactly where, but I'll but anyway, doesn't we're not going to well, I don't really want to debate how hard the, the <laughs> hard science fiction Fine. this is. Fine. Um as much but, as but. I feel like any debate is 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 something that you get excited about, Spencer. Um, I'm a lawyer. What do you want? I, uh th- this is not an adversarial podcast. We we do get our first uh, Japanese character, our first bit of kanji here. Do you guys? Do you guys? Did you guys um, pull up the uh, written version of this? Yes, the, like, I no? I did not. Lavar Burton told me to, and then I you didn't, didn't. listen. <laughs> I really didn't. Um. Well, throughout the text, there are two different. Well, throughout there are two moments in this text where there are kanji characters. The first one here is meant, and they're meant to provide a visual depiction of what our character is going through or what he's describing. Mm-hmm. Not really going necessarily into the character, but what it looks like, kind of what the character is originally represented. The first one is the country for Umbrella, and it's basically giving us an image of what this spaceship looks like, which I th- mm-hmm. Sarah, as you referenced, the spaceship is called something Hope, right? Like Hopeful? 
Yeah, I don't remember exactly now, but it is um, referenced several times. It has hope in it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And and the people who are on it start to refer to themselves kind of in those same terms. Yeah, it is hopeful. You are but correct, Spencer. It, um, and so for anybody that is vaguely familiar with Japanese kanji, um, they're basically what look vaguely like the kanji for a man underneath a uh, an awning. And so that mm-hmm. is umbrella. And it looks to him like what the spaceship does in terms of this just massive solar sail extending for, he describes it as like kilometers. thousands of, hundreds of kilometers, mm-hmm. thousands of kilometers. It's, it's a massive thing. Okay. Um, within the trailing little habitats that follow distantly after it, where they can't even see, the, thing, the solar sail is so massive they can't even see the stars before them. The only way they can see them is when they look down below. And his job aboard the ship is to monitor this solar sail lattice at all times, because as you would think, with this being the necessary thing to build the acceleration so they can go the 30 light years to, I wrote it down, what was the name of the solar system they're going to? Virginus. It was, yeah, 61 Virginus. Mm-hmm. Um, they have to make sure the solar sail maintains is intact, because even the slightest hole could lead to this t- entire thing breaking apart. Um, as part of this job, he's also, st- well, as part of living aboard the ship, he's also got a couple other roles, too, of where... This is primarily an American vessel. Apparently the U.S. built it and most of the people aboard are U.S. citizens. But there are a collection of people from other nations. They describe it as being the one giant American flag that everyone pledges allegiance <laughs> to. And then about 12 tiny little flags in front of it for the various survivors of other, of other countries on the Earth. Mm-hmm. As the sole survivor from Japan, our main character feels obliged in some ways to provide a bit of cultural enrichment and tell the new children that have been born in the now couple of decades since leaving Earth about the, Earth, the world that was left behind. And one of the main ways he does this is through, they imply, the game Go. Which, do I, have either of you played Go? Because I have only ever watched it played. I know so absolutely Spencer. nothing. <laughs> I know nothing about Go and would like for someone to tell me a little bit about it, please. Um, I can tell you it is not a spectator sport for me watching it. I feel like it, you know... It is in some ways more boring than chess to watch, um, and chess is not a spectator sport. Um, so, it, as described in the book, it's a 19 by 19 board um, mm-hmm. of basically intersecting lines. Um, and so, unlike a chess game where your pieces go inside the square, your pieces go on the vertices of the lines. And basically, it there are many ways that people talk about it, and what I find kind of funny is it basically makes its way into every large fantasy world. Um, <laughs> it, every oh, every place you just see a reference to stones or something like that, and they're always black and white pieces, and it's always played by like generals and whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but basically, you take turns playing um, these individual stones. They don't have any particular powers, but what, when you surround another color's uh, stones, either like entirely with your stones or your stones and the edge of the board, you capture mm-hmm. those stones. And so those get taken off the board. Okay. Um, and then you continue playing from there because those, even those captured spaces can then have stones placed in them for various reasons. Um, and basically games can either go until there are no valid moves for one player or usually what happens is somebody forfeits. Mm-hmm. Um, and is, so it's a much more, I guess, sort of polite game. Um, mm-hmm. And so there are sort of similar things to check 
um, I believe you're supposed to alert your opponent when you're about to take their men or something like that or, or whatever it is. But um, anyway, so the capturing circles are called eyes and there's many, many, many volumes of strategy around it, but the very basic portion is you play stones and kept try and capture territory and, and your opponent's map. And the way our, the way our um, Hiroto describes the game in the story is that chess is the skirmish, go is the war. And from what I know mm -hmm. about it, it kind of represents the scaling up in terms of the various moves you can do at any one time. Whereas, I mean, I've heard it said before that the number of legal moves that occur in Go number in the thousands, almost at any given moment. Yeah. It's incredibly, incredibly complex to the point that they... It took a much longer time for a AI computer to beat a human at Go, or beat the grandmasters at Go, than it did for them to beat humans at chess. Mm -hmm. And I, mm -hmm. I think I actually just read on BBC the other day that the current greatest player in Go has officially retired because he's now acknowledging the AI has surpassed him. That in a recent, a relatively recent tournament, that in five games they played, the AI beat him four times, which is incredibly unexpected. And he's effectively now retiring from the sport because there is nothing to aspire to anymore. We have been surpassed. Well, it's actually, I think, a little bit funnier than that. Um, and very sort of Japanese because um, there is a, as far as I understand, there's a way that he has learned to play and m most, many, if not most humans play and the AI played differently. And so it was a, just a very different strategy and way of looking at the board sort of. Um, mm. And it's like, I think part of it was he could relearn how to play this different way, but it would take a really long time. And then he'd, he'd essentially have to get good about at playing Go against the AI. <laughs> and so Interesting. there's no point in doing that in his no, mind. And it, would, and it would continue to grow at the same time he tried to compete in, with its prior form that he, uh, it played him. So it'd be in some ways a fool's enterprise anyway. Right. Um, and, yeah. and I think, you know, the in some ways to me that that is way more interesting because it, it seems like the ai like found a as far as i understand like it may just be he beat them outright but it, it found like a strategy that works very well against you know how people usually play which i mean i can imagine happening in many other games um but it's just sort of a very like okay i i have done well this is not what i'm going to do anymore the, the, compu the computer learned Go, but it learned Go to beat humans rather than so just learning the game. Right. But he's trying to teach them, and the distinctly American, he could be, I think one of the kids is named literally Bobby, just to make him as American as possible, is uh, not fond of the game for the primary reason that it is not focused on the individual and heroes. It's about the whole board and the whole options and playing a field. Mm -hmm. And so there's no one that the kid can identify with. He loves to just, he, he prefers to just be the hero of the story or at least have somebody that he can identify as the hero of the story, like in chess or in appropriately Asteroid Destroyer is apparently his favorite game. It's <laughs> a little bit macabre. <laughs> but this is one of the first moments that we see some aspects of Roto's ch culture challenge those around him that clearly puts him off, but he tries to be quiet about it. Mm -hmm. The next moment is with his, I suppose, girlfriend. Um that he's developed aboard the ship, who is, like him, an orphan that came from a primarily Spanish-speaking country and has forgot most of her own culture, and so is trying to learn about his, or at least what he remembers from being age eight. Mm -hmm. And while they're talking, they discuss... He tells her a few Japanese words, tells her aspect of what he remembers about his past, and they discuss what ha people did when that announcement came from the prime minister. 
And he tells her about it, and her reaction is, is to think, oh, well, I guess they just they were resigned and given up. And he has to keep his anger in check, because that, uh, that opinion on what happened pisses him right off. Because he's gotten, well, as his father instructed him to be, he's quite proud of his culture, and he'd prefer not to see their reaction in, those, in that lens, and doesn't agree with that interpretation. Yeah, and it, I think that it, it's interesting that he doesn't really discuss it further, rather than trying to talk to her about it. Mm-hmm. Um, because yeah. I feel like it's a fairly simple, like, acceptance and resignation are different things. And that's, like, mm-hmm. a fairly simple thing to talk about, but... No, he, he can only see it through the eyes of an eight-year-old, that's all he experienced it as. And that's mm-hmm. probably the live-wire defensive response he would have, even yeah. though it's been decades since and he's matured since. Yeah, but he hasn't matured necessarily in that in that culture and in the teachings of his father, right? Mm-hmm. No. I mean, Kindler said a very interesting thing, all this line during the interview, is that the way you celebrate a culture is by continuing to let it grow. Yeah. The moment the moment you put it just on a shelf fixed, it's effectively dead. It's something you're talking about in the past rather than something that's continuing to live. And that's kind of the things he's war- our main character's warring with himself in terms of thinking about Japanese culture, is that he is the last survivor of it. He only has its memories. And he's trying to work with these kids to persist in it, but even he kind of sees that it doesn't really work. Because he doesn't have enough, enough ingrained it, enough memories of it to really teach others about it or even explain it. He's, he struggles to explain it to his girlfriend as they're, as they're there together. Mm-hmm. I, I, I think it, that, yeah. Sorry, go ahead, Sarah. No, go ahead. You're fine. Um, I was going to say, I feel like there's a little bit of um, almost thesis as ship of this where it's just like, you know, how many component parts of the culture like can you modify and still have it be the same thing? Mm-hmm. Um, where it's just like... If you're essentially, rather than replacing things with sort of exact replicas, you're just like, well, we'll do it this way instead. And, like, at what point does it become something very different? Um, Mm -hmm. Which I think is the other side of the, once you sort of write it down and and solidify it, it becomes dead. But, like, if it's something completely different, is it still, you know, Japanese culture? And it also becomes a question of, like, if he is the only person left... I, I cultures require cult, the 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 trans um, the sort of transcendence of culture and the the transmittal of culture requires more than one person practicing that culture, right? Sure. Yeah. So it becomes a question of okay, well, what's the point? Well, can you just have other people appropriate it? Well, <laughs> you can go back to personal lover for that, and <laughs> right, and that, that's, yeah. that's, that's that's kind of what he's trying to get. He's trying what he's trying to do is that he's trying to get these little American students to, in some ways, embrace aspects of his culture so that it can exist beyond him. Mm-hmm. And it isn't working because it's not, he, he's, there's no one to really grow up with. There's no one to really interact with on an equal level. All we can do is offer tokens because that's all he really has. I'm kind of amazed yeah. they even had a ghost set that they brought aboard the ship or maybe he's had it made since. It's yeah, a very, where, that, where that came from. It's a very simple thing. Like, you could essentially make it out of a piece of paper and... A bunch of like anything it, they just need, yeah. need to be like two separate markers yeah so we're, we're assuming that he made it then himself probably from memory or he took I, his father's ghost set because that what is one of the things that he packed with him that's true forgot about that um so but we have these various cultural moments and um these various interactions he's trying to in some way come to terms with the fact that he is the last vestige of this culture that still remains mm-hmm. and while he's doing his job 
He notices a bit of quirk in their direction. His girlfriend works in navigation, so he gives her a call and says, Hey, are we off course a little bit right now? As we're continuing, I'm guessing, to kind of circle the sun to build up speed so they eventually can shoot themselves through space to go where they want to go. And she comments that they are. And they look into it deeper and find that, by some means, the solar cell has been pierced and is starting to thread and separate from its lattice structure. Mm-hmm. And this is bad. This is threatening to leave them dead in the water uh, with no hope of ever getting to the uh, new Earth they want to find. Or at least majorly off course. In a, in a way they can't control. Right. Yeah. And, unless they can repair it now, which Dr. Hamilton is struggling to think of a way to do it because by the time they could get out there to do it, it would have already gotten so bad they couldn't repair it easily by hand. Yeah. And I feel like this is sort of where the story loses a star for me. Okay. Um, because it's basically like... I kind of grew up playing Go, and I can recognize patterns, so I can get out there faster and better than anybody else, and it's my... Go ahead, Spencer. No, finish the thought, because I agree with you very much. It's my special Japanese nature that that allows me to do this, Mm -hmm. and and so... And it's my special Japanese nature that causes me to make a a sacrifice and th- like there are a lot of things going on here yeah yeah right. and and so this is sort of where it's just like okay it's a little bit caricature and tropey and things like that but eh, okay what's ken lu's background again I, i'm actually forgetting what his is he chinese is he chinese american that's what i thought but he seems to just write he's a, well. a lot of asian cultures mm-hmm. uh yeah so he's chinese um so i i don't know that it doesn't matter either way. He still he still writes it very authentically. It's just other than this one little moment, like you, it rubbed. It just struck me funny of where you could delete about three paragraphs here, or just have him say, "Well, I found it. And I think I can go out there and do it." But tying it to his unique cultural background and his knowledge of Go and his Japanese heritage, it just it struck me as stereotyping in a way that I found unfortunate otherwise in the story. Mm-hmm. And I have to say that like that that moment. I very much agree with both of you and for me it highlighted and kind of made apparent some things that I was I think willfully ignoring throughout the rest of the story where I get a little I get a little both uncomfortable and annoyed with a a story that is constantly doing the well this is Japanese and this is American and Mm -hmm. they are so fundamentally different and we get a couple of moments of that in other parts of the story too that I think I would have been very happy to like kind of breeze through or ignore without this very overt moment. Yeah. But right. And so it made me go back and reassess and be like, I don't all of this. I, I kind of get it and it doesn't bother me that much. Mm-hmm. And, but they are but very it's a little different places. Like right. the cultures are like, I, I get like, I, it, I, I a hundred percent agree with you. Um, but but there's also like there are also just very, at least currently very different cultures and very different places to be. Um, but I do again, I do think like you're very right in how it's character caricaturized. Yeah, mm-hmm. because I you're totally you're absolutely right, BJ. I mean, and I don't think I think that it would also be a disservice to discount like real cultural differences and mm-hmm. real differences in worldview that stem from those cultures and practices, right? Yeah. And that is that is very clear and very true. But there is, the language can sometimes get a little bit into the sort of like, no, but these are fundamental differences. Yeah. Um, 
and it goes a little far in that language that that just just gets me a little bit in the wrong headspace yeah mm-hmm. it, it, it was interesting for me of where i had that feeling from the get-go when uh-huh. i was having it read to me mm-hmm. when i was listening to lar burton do it i couldn't get out of that annoyance mindset response to it whereas mm-hmm. when i sat down and read it myself i could put it in my own framework and i liked it a lot better of where and I that didn't have... you know i i only I'll, I'll admit i only listened to it so you know maybe that was a part of it spencer yeah it, it, I, my, it, my hackles got up early and i had a hard mm-hmm. time getting them back down and moments like this kind of sent them up continuing through the story mm-hmm. whereas reading it i really got into it i really enjoyed it and i could appreciate getting more into the mindset of the characters rather than seeing it from an observer and being put off by some aspects of it mm-hmm. but i mean it's both his background and go and also something that makes much more reasonable sense in the story it's his job to look at this lattice all day, every day. Yeah, but it's yeah, his job. Yeah, could we have just let that be the explanation? Yeah, that one <laughs> yeah. would have worked. I mean, it was yeah. just like he's looking at patterns of lights and then, like, realizes it. And so I feel like that sort of makes a reasonable amount of sense. But then it was just like, but then, like, I can traverse the sail better than anybody else. And it was just like, okay, this is also just getting a little... It, it also struck me funny because one of the key things, this key themes the story goes into, particularly as we're going to the end now, is that it does, it's not one hero, it's a people who are a hero, people mm-hmm. doing a great thing together. Mm-hmm. So now that he, putting him in the role of now having the unique hero skills necessary to save the day for everyone, kind of separates us from what I thought was a much more profoundly important theme in connecting it actually into the point of go. Um, mm-hmm. So I thought, I thought we lost something there by just him suddenly developing the hero... Heroic skills and the heroic virtues and the unique heroic knowledge to save the day for everyone, where everyone else is helpless. I mean, it is his that... name. What? <laughs> oh, God. All right. Thank you, BJ. Sorry. You're welcome. Um, but so, like, I guess the, the other side of it is you could say that anybody could traverse the sail as quickly as he could. They just had to be willing to sacrifice themselves for it, which... Basically, Which they don't ponder. Yeah. They don't ponder that as an option. Right. They present it, at least at that moment, as there's nothing we can do. We're doomed. Mm-hmm. Right. Oh, wait, I have the unique skills, knowledge, and abilities to do this. Right. And and so it's... That's how it's framed. He kind of, like, he kind of says it in the way, like, I can get out there and get back quickly. I'll just have to mm-hmm. do it straight for, like, three days. Um, and so we... Essentially, the last part of the book is his journey out to the hole in the sail and mm-hmm. you know his girlfriend trying to keep him awake and referring to some of like their past relationship and so she sings to him and talks to him um and then he sort of ends up hallucinating passing out not 100 percent sure and having conversations with his uh father mm-hmm. and that part i'm down with that part i enjoyed i sure. I, I got back into the story with that i, I got back into even the the framing of him going through the lattice and viewing it in the concept of go. I found that interesting. Um, and it was even then also his, the idea that he increasingly has is that, as in the game of Go, it's not about any one person. It's not about identifying through one hero. It's not even about individuality. It's about what we can accomplish together, working together. And, yeah, those were all interesting themes. But he makes it out there, which it's it really... Stri- it, I mean, if we're discussing the hard science... It strikes me as funny they wouldn't have some method in place to go do this. Because space is empty, but the solar cell is everything. you think you would have some fast means to go out there and fix these kind of issues. But the ship was designed real quick. They didn't. But he spends three days getting out there, his girlfriend keeping him awake the whole time. He gets out there, and 
uses a tool to essentially weld it back in place. Mm -hmm. But, as a result of falling asleep, he banged the tool against something and it started to leak, and so he doesn't have enough fuel to complete the job. Yeah, essentially he has, like, a blowtorch and a jetpack, and the blowtorch ran out of fuel, so he needs to use his jetpack to... as a blowtorch, essentially. Which means that he won't be able to get back if he supplements the blowtorch fuel from the jetpack. Right, and he has a conversation about this. Like, again, this is sort of one of the imperfect pieces of it, but, like, it, it doesn't take away enough for me mm-hmm. again where it's just like the whole weird conversation of it's like oh i don't have enough fuel and like he already has a solution and then you have the conversation with dr hamilton and his girlfriend and it's just like well then we don't well you can come back and then we'll go back out and fix it and it's just like this that is, was getting yeah. a bit trope that was getting tropey it's like it's like yeah he, he it, they did he could have had that conversation entirely in his head and i think it would have been more effective involving the other characters just made it pretty tropey hero kind of story like I mean, this is the moment where we got pretty armageddon yeah and but I, th- I think it would have been reasonable to have the conversation with his girlfriend and have dr hamilton thank him mm-hmm. yeah but it was, anyway okay. it was just that a little worked. bit much but he signs off essentially turns off the radio rather than have and turns off the radio fixes the problem and then just casts himself off into space rather than risk them coming to save him and as he's floating through the cosmos, he returns to a few thoughts that he has of his father, including, I believe, one last poem. Do I have that right? Yeah, I think so. Let me see. Uh, nope, actually, he's he's, he's just thinking about, he's just having a few moments tying in to go and thinking about, um, as, we, as we've already discussed, the idea of each of us being heroes in our own way in terms of soldiering through, surviving, and accomplishing things together. Mm-hmm. So, with a line, we are defined by the places we hold in the web of others' lives. Which is a sort okay. of a nice theme, and he gets more yeah. more kitten t- tickling. <laughs> a few little kitten tickles, and then he kind of imagines the, that kind of last moment he had with his dad, of where he's just walking along the streets, taking a chance to look at everything, and then imagines as he's floating away that he's going off at a walk with his father to remember every passing blade of grass, every dewdrop, every fading ray of the dying sun, infinitely beautiful. Mm-hmm. And that's so, the story. <laughs> yeah. Well, we talked about we liked this one better as compared yes. to the last one. And I'm actually blanking. What was the name of the last one again? Something burdensome. It um, was a weird title. It was. Um, and I will tell you momentarily because... But, well, you, you, you check that. Sarah, you, talk, you mentioned that you liked this one a lot better. Is there anything in particular you liked about this one? Other, you mentioned that it engaged with you more. Uh, Spencer, that was going to be exactly my question. Um, I know, so I put it back on you before you could. <laughs> could hear it in your temper. Um, okay, so what what did I like about this one better? So there were a couple of things, um, especially since I, I so distinctly disliked the you last really one. Did. You um, really and did. And there were a couple of things that I particularly disliked about the last one. So a couple of things that I think went went a lot better here. Um, one has to do specifically with the characters themselves. Um, I think we spent a lot of time last week talking about in the previous Ken Liu short story that BJ is getting the title for that none of us can remember. You'll um, always have the burden with you. I don't know why that's the title. Yeah, it didn't make any sense. Um, so in that story, I, I really struggled to care about any of the characters. And that seemed partially because they were kind of, 
A, there was no real character development for them, um, but B, they were kind of stand-ins for ideas more than anything. Um, and I do feel like I have a, I had a real sense of some of the characters here. I actually thought um, that um, the mother was one of the most interesting characters mm-hmm. in this whole thing and kind of what her deal was and the, and the subtle backstory we get and all of that. Like, I thought that was really cool. Um, the girlfriend I thought was kind of interesting in, in what she was doing. Like we got a a range of characters in a relatively short story that was also relatively packed with a lot of other stuff. There was still some interesting character development. So that was, um, that was one thing. And I think related to that, like I was so mad at the last story for just like being this, um, kind of loosely plotted, anthropology lesson and it didn't feel like anything more than that mm-hmm. and while there are still some vestiges of that in this in this story I felt like it was much more concentrated on how do these ideas get translated into individual lives mm-hmm. um, and what does that mean in given situations so I you know I thought not a perfect short story by any means but I enjoyed it and I, I did think that it was much more successful than the last one that we read. Yeah, I think mm-hmm. that each of the characters sort of get enough detail so they're real descriptions of characters, like uh, that, that yeah. they could be real people as opposed to um, just essentially like notes for a casting call. I feel like, yeah. you know, the last story was like a, we need this kind of character and that's sort of all we got. Yep. Whereas mm-hmm. this, there were, there was some detail to the characters that made them realer and more relatable. And the story itself, like, had some interesting qualities to it, but mm-hmm. this is more, more of a character-driven story and sort of culturally-driven story. And so he, he mm-hmm. addresses that and talks about that, where I think the last story, I mean, it didn't... One of the things that we've talked about on this podcast is characters, plot, and world-building. And I feel like the last story had none of those. And this story at least has some of each and is better weighted in at least characters for me. Yeah. Spencer. And can I throw in one? I just want to throw in one last thing that I liked about this story better than the last one, Mm -hmm. Um, which was that although I am I am not entirely convinced by the kitten licking the heart description, um, this was just a much better written story. Like, the Mm -hmm. language was just better in this story. And one of the things I distinctly remember complaining about last week uh, was that 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 story was just not well written. Yeah. Um, That the language itself was was lacking in ways that were really disappointing to me, given other work that I've read by Kin Lu. And this, um, I think particularly because it was focused on poetry, um, and sometimes that went a little over the top for me, it nevertheless meant that we had a much more lyrical language, much more um, kind of substantive passages of language that was actually doing something instead of just like, let me describe what this um, tablet looked like that the <laughs> language was on. It like, you know, it just felt more, there was more of that world building through the language that made it feel realer. <laughs> anyway, Spencer. Yeah, no, I very much agree. More, it, it, between the three stories we've now read of Kilo, I think I'm starting to get what he does well and what he doesn't. Mm-hmm. Of where he seems to do personal character-driven stories quite well. 
He seems to be able to very much get us in the minds of the characters, very much represent their unique experiences, their unique background, and how those interact with the world, and make that feel real and make it have an emotional effect. And he does, he does that well in this story. There's definitely some connections back to Paper Matry that I've liked here in terms of how they're, in some ways, very similarly plotted and mm-hmm. similarly structured, even if it's a very different setting that's going into play here. Mm-hmm. Um, it also tells me what things he doesn't do particularly well. Like, the main thing, one of the things we hated about the last story is that the main character has this unique skill that lets her unlock everything, and how it was just dumb. It was that she had a unique, basically, the fact she was a CPA allowed her to save the, to, to open up the universe of this, of this society. We all thought that was dumb. Here, the moment we all have now railed against is that the main character suddenly has the unique skill that's designed to save the day. And that, apparently that kind of working in the unique abilities to drive forward the story is just something he does very ham-handed. We've seen mm-hmm. it now at least twice in these stories that it's, it was her worst moments. It, I agree about the poetry, too, is that I don't, I've read very little in terms of Japanese poetry. I think the story is implying these are all existing poems that have all been that the, the, the dad is quoting rather than the ones that are being made up for the stories. Is that what you guys got out of it? Mm-hmm. But I agree that they can, times come across as over the top or a little bit too on the nose, but in some ways I felt that that was almost more effective that they were because the dad is trying to, in some ways, pointedly instill these lessons into his son, pointedly give yeah. his experiences at the last moment in a way mm-hmm. that almost has to be ham-headed because they just don't have the time. He's trying to give him all of these big moments that he would have otherwise had years to provide in the day and a half they have before the end of the world occurs. And so these moments, the recurring themes connected back to the past, how that branches into the story, all the things I liked about Ken Liu, and I liked that they're here. There's some ham-handedness, there's some Mm -hmm. forced moments that apparently is a recurring problem in some of his stories, but it didn't take away from that just undercurrent of character emotion that he's very good at writing, and I'm very happy to see when it comes across. Yeah. yeah. Do, is there anything else you guys want to talk about with the stories? Any other key moments or key things you got out of it? Um, I think we've done pretty well with it. Yeah. <laughs> well, here's a question that you raised, because I, I actually liked the mom quite a bit too, but what was it about her in particular that made her your favorite character, Sarah? Um, that's a good, that's a good question. I think for me, she felt, for me, she felt like the realist character. And I think actually part of this goes to a couple, actually part of this goes to some of the, the, as you said, Spencer, ham-handed moments that Ken Liu has, right? Um, it's probably not the, the greatest thing that the character we see the least of, I think is the realist character in the story. (laughs) Um, (laughs) That's probably not that great, but Mm. I think that what Ken Liu did really well with her was that he allowed her to be a little bit of a mystery and that we get sort of gestures to her past life and we get gestures to the sacrifices that she makes for her family um, and the real struggle and decision-making process that she has has to go through in deciding kind of what is to be done here. Mm -hmm. I thought all of that was really beautiful. Mm -hmm. Um, and it was better for the fact that it was not dwelt over or dwelt mm-hmm. on for such a long time. I, um, I like, what about you, Spencer? No, I like as well that it also provides a bit of nuance in some ways in response to the dad. Because mm-hmm. the dad is uh, the dad's very interesting. He's a very interesting philosophy. But he's a very much hidebound traditionalist to the yeah. point that he's directly denying reality at times in a way the mom never seems to be. That she is, 
in some ways, you described her as being the realist. I'd also, I also say that she is the most realist in terms yes. of philosophy of the characters as well, too. That she's, much more than the dead, consciously aware of the problems that are going on, of where things are failing, of the things they need to do going forward, in a way that he may not be fully capable of. Because he's so focused on the moment, the experiencing the moment, the trust that goes into the moment, that he can't always see the long-term picture of what needs to be done going forward in a way that she's capable of. But mm-hmm. she's never directly challenging him about that. She's flowing around him and directing him and doing what needs to be done around behind the scenes, even if it's sometimes it's in direct contrast to what he apparently would directly will. And that's a very interesting thing to see structured out. It, we get into a debate, but BJ, you raised this kind of debate about when the dad realized what she was going to do. Because it seemed to me in that moment, she did not realize that he knew, if he knew in advance. Mm-hmm. That she seemed just as shocked as Dr. Hamilton did, that he's suddenly there in the doorway looking in as she's handing off their child. Mm-hmm. But, it, yeah, their relationship and her were very interesting characters to see framed. Because, I mean, I'd say we get basically three characters that are fleshed out to a substantial enough degree. The rest of them, we get some interesting moments, but the dad, the mom, and Hiroto are the main ones we get to see really developed in their various philosophies. And her... Mm-hmm. What, what little bits we get are very interesting in terms of how their relationship works. Yeah, I, I think that one of what makes the story for me and and why what makes the characters real is it, in many ways, I think if you ask Ken Liu about his characters, like, where did they grow up? Like, you know, major things about them, he would be able to answer because he actually has that and he knows that much about his characters and then he's writing sort of a little bit of their responsiveness rather than like what he wants that character to say particularly in that moment if that's true i would have loved to have seen his character notes for the prior short story i don't think he had i guess i it doesn't feel like he had them like this feels like he he knows about his characters and he knows what who his characters are it it was interesting for that prior story i had a, a co-worker of mine read it and they came back to me afterward and said, well, I hated it until I realized it was a comedy, and then I found it was funny. And I don't know if that's what Ken Liu intended, but I'm glad that person at least enjoyed it in that light. Sure. I don't... Hmm. I don't... The, their opinion was, yeah, the one I saw in that light, I saw it was all tongue-in-cheek and an intentional comedy. I'm like, do I want to spend the time to go back and read it in that mindset? No. No. I'm glad you had that moment. Yeah. yeah I... I I, I mean, maybe. I'm not going to take the time to go back I'm and not, try to I'm reread not, it that way. I'm not going to check. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I think this sort of falls into, like, the um, Army of Darkness and um, <laughs> the Expendables and stuff like that, where it's just, like, if it's actually not taking itself seriously, then it can be good, but I don't think it it made those steps. I think it was, like, mm-hmm. it could have been there, um, and I think, like, there are ways that it could have changed, but it just it just wasn't. Um, for me, mm-hmm. but I'm glad they got some enjoyment out of it. Um, oh, sure, even if Death we could. the author and all that. So yeah, um, I guess is there there anything else? I feel like we've done done a good dive on this one. I no. think so too. Um, we should just um, release and accept its ending. If um, our readers are not quite ready to let go yet, 
if our listeners are not quite ready to let go yet, where might they go, PJ? Um, if they have questions, comments, or, or anything along those lines, uh, you can go to mangumtalks.com and contact us. There's a link on the upper right-hand corner. Um, and iTunes, Stitcher, and, and anywhere you get your podcasts, you can find all of our content, which includes this show, Mangum Reads, our Pottercast within a podcast, Pottering Around as well as Mangum Talks TV, maybe Reprisal of Got Questions, given the prequels at some point, um, some mm. basketball stuff every so often, some humor stuff, as well as Whiskey on the Weekends, where we drink whiskey on some weekends. Um, and yeah, if you have any suggestions of stories you want to hear us talk about, want to force us to read, um, anything like that, we'd be uh, happy to have your suggestions. All right, sounds good. Well, this was fun, y'all. As always. Till next week.